Hi, I'm Larry Reed, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Doug Stewart, and today we're going to talk about the importance of defending liberty in the legal space. Daniel M. Ortner has joined us today, and he's an attorney who is from the Pacific Legal Foundation. He focuses on First Amendment, property rights, economic liberty, and curtailing the overreach of the administrative state. Daniel, those are awesome things to talk about on our podcast. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I would love to know more about the organizations that are out there defending liberty on a literally a case-by-case basis because it's definitely something that I don't personally pay attention to unless it, you know, kind of makes national news. I mean, there's, we all know about things like Hobby Lobby and and all these cases that make it to the Supreme Court, but there's a lot of cases out there that might only get past regional areas. And so I think Pacific Legal is one of those organizations that help people in a way that uh, is defending individual liberty. So give us a little bit of like, who is Pacific Legal Foundation? Uh, What is its mission? And, and, And then after that, we'll kind of talk about you a little bit. Yeah, so Pacific Legal Foundation is one of the the oldest, uh, the kind of biggest and oldest uh, conservative, libertarian leaning public interest law firms. We've been around uh, for a long time uh, since the when Reagan was governor of California. Some of his uh, people left after his administration and helped to found Pacific Legal Foundation. Uh, they've been fighting ever since uh, to protect individual liberty. You mentioned, you know, we involve we involved with free speech and, and and other rights in the First Amendment. Uh, property rights has been our bread and butter, defending the right of people to use their property freely without government interference, challenging the administrative state, challenging uh, government disc- discrimination on the ba- when the government discriminates on the basis of race or sex uh, or other characteristics. So, fighting for the idea of equal protection. Uh, we represent uh, clients pro bono, so they don't. We take on their legal fees without having them pay us for their legal expenses in order to defend individual liberty and stand up for the Constitution. And we help people, you know, sue the government and, and prevail in challenges against the government. Like you mentioned there there are a lot of great uh, public interest law firms in the space. Pacific Legal Foundation is is one of the big ones. Institute for Justice is another one that we uh, partner with quite often. Uh, in the religious sphere in particular, there's the Beckett Fund, there's Alliance Defending Freedom, there's uh, First Liberty Institute, quite a few other uh, great organizations. And we all you know, take on, have a different different focus on what we do in defending liberty, but we're all allies ultimately in that, that fight for individual freedom and, and liberty. Is the Pacific Legal Foundation the first place in this space that you've worked? Uh, no, before coming here, I, I worked uh, as a, a fellow just for a year at the, at the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, doing religious liberty cases exclusively. Uh, so I have had some experience there. Before uh, those, before going to the Beckett, I, I was a, a, a clerk for some judges. I, I clerked for uh, Justice Tom Lee on the Utah Supreme Court for a year, and then I clerked for Judge Kent Jordan on the Third Circuit Federal Court of Appeals the year after that. So I had great uh, clerkship experiences after law school. 
also in law school, I did a lot of religious liberty related work. I went to Brigham Young University for law school and we have a international religious freedom uh, center there. And I worked extensively with the center when I was there uh, organizing. They have a big uh, international religious freedom conference every year at the law school. So I was involved with organizing that conference and uh, helping facilitate the conference at, at the law school. So what got you into this space? I mean, this uh, takes quite a lot of effort to get to the point where you are. I mean, to be an attorney, to, I mean, yeah. that just sounds like a lot of work to me. Uh, you you got there. So what what drove you to, to go into this area? I, I've always been passionate about the law and, and seeing how the law can be used to defend individual rights. Uh, it really, you know, government overreach is a, a really you know putting down individual freedom is a, a serious problem in in so many spheres and i see i've always seen the law as a, a tool that can be used to fight back against that government overreach i love how the law can be used to protect individuals rather than to put them down which i think is what the law often ends up doing so it's really empowering uh, I, you know I, when i was in law school i wasn't sure exactly what i wanted to do i tried uh, working for a big law firm for a little bit i tried working at in government but when i first tried public interest law you know, working doing this kind of work representing individuals against the government defending their freedoms it just really uh, resonated with me the uh, the ability to come to work every day and feel like what i'm doing really makes a difference for people that i get to stand up in court or in briefs and defend individual freedom uh, is really empowering, and it gets me excited every day to to come to work and to be able to do do that incredible work. To get into this space, do you have to be an attorney, or can you know? I'm kind of thinking like many of our listeners may sort of be passionate about this kind of thing, but be becoming a lawyer may not be the the path they could take. I mean, what other ways can they be involved? We have you know attorneys. We also have obviously people that do government outreach work as well, as well as a media comms people that do video editing, website web design. We have a, you know, a lot of uh, important work that is done by the, the support staff. Uh, for instance, one thing that uh, public interest law firms are able to do and Pacific Legal does really well is when they have a story, uh, we send a video team to do make a video telling a, a client's story, explaining who they are, explaining how they've come up against the government and what they're fighting for. And so we're able to, to paint a narrative uh, and do that through client interviews, through videos, through op-eds, uh, the whole package to really persuade people uh, about the cause that we're fighting for. So it's not just in the courtroom that we, we fight, it's in the court of public opinion. So there, there's always room in any of these uh, public interest law firms, there's need for communications, for government outreach, fundraising, development, the whole, that whole package. And so people that are interested in, in public interest work but aren't attorneys could get involved in some other aspects and really make a big difference as well. Are there any landmark cases that uh, Pacific Legal has been involved in that maybe some of our listeners know about that we just didn't know that they were involved? Sure. We've had a, a, a lot of success at the Supreme Court. We've had a, a dozen victories at the Supreme Court just this year. Uh, none of them are in the, in the religious religious space, religious freedom space, but there are some big First Amendment and property rights cases that we've been involved with. Uh, just this year, we won uh, the case of the Nick case, Nick v. Township of Scott, which was a, a landmark property case, uh, which the Supreme Court decided, uh, ruled in our favor and overturned a, a case that basically kept cases out of federal court. When uh, state governments uh, took private property or passed regulations that, that effectively took property, uh, there was a, a, a case that said you have to go through the hurdles of jumping through loops in state court. One of our attorneys has been challenging that that precedent for 15 years, and finally this year, just 
couple weeks ago, the Supreme Court agreed with us, struck down that past that case uh, and said, federal courts are open for these kind of takings lawsuits. You don't have to jump through these hurdles and loops. So that was a big, big, big win for Pacific Legal just this past year. Very recently, we had a big First Amendment victory uh, last year, last term, uh, in the Minnesota uh, Voters Alliance case, Miansky, which was a, a case about uh, apparel at the polling place. Uh, the state of Minnesota had a ban on political apparel uh, being worn to the voting po- place, uh, really any apparel that touched on it, any issue that was in political contention. And so, of course, that was an incredibly overly broad and vague law. It was inconsistently being enforced depending on the discretion of the individual poll workers. So we challenged that rule at the Supreme Court, uh, got a, a, a big free speech victory. Uh, the court said, no, that that policy is unconstitutionally vague. It cannot consistently be applied in a meaningful fashion. Uh, and they struck it down uh, and it ruled in our favor. So basically that was for people who work the polls or people who are going to vote? Yeah, people going to vote. So people who are wearing a I mean, t-shirt. they couldn't wear a t-shirt that says that was like pro-Trump or pro-Hillary yeah. or whatever, like couldn't do that, even though that's what they were there to do? They, could, they couldn't wear a shirt, let's say, that was uh, pro-gun rights. Uh, if, if gun rights were an issue that was being debated during the election. Now, it was, it was very vague, very unclear what exactly was covered. And so people were being turned away for wearing a Tea Party shirt, for wearing all kinds of things. Uh, we're actually, fi- uh, some of our attorneys are involved with a case right now in Texas, also involving someone who was turned away for wearing a MAGA hat at the polls. So this is an ongoing fight that we're uh, engaged with uh, throughout the country. Uh, but the, the Mansky case was a big uh, win for free speech before the Supreme Court. And we're hoping now we're taking that precedent and applying it in other places where they're doing similar, similarly denying individual right, individual free speech rights. So I'm going to pause on this issue for just a second because this is kind of a curious thing to me. So what is the reasoning behind, like what is the stated rationale behind prohibiting such things? Sure. So there's a, a Supreme Court decision, uh, several decades old. I think it's a very bad decision, but it, the part of the law said, this, the, this case, opinion said, you can ban electioneering at the polling place. Basically, this idea that the polling place should be a, a sanctuary for you to quietly go and, and cast your vote. So the, the Supreme Court case has said, you know, you can, you can say, you know, no electioneering within 100 feet of the polling place or 200 feet of the polling place. Uh, so that that's kind of the rationale that's being used for these T-shirts. It's, you know, well, if you're wearing a T-shirt, you're going to be it's it's going to bother people that are going to the polls. It's you know, another effort to persuade people in a place that should be kind of free from that, uh, which I, I think is kind of a, a bogus idea. You know, the, the polling place, if anywhere, is the, the place where we should be having political debate and discussion where people should be free to wear and to express their their political ideas. So I, 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 don't, I dislike uh, the, the idea behind the case. Uh, behind this, these laws that limit speech expression in the polling place. But the, the law in this Mansky case was even more egregious. It was, you know, you can't wear something uh, if it touches on an issue, a political issue. Uh, so it was, the Supreme Court said, well, even if you can ban, you know, campaign signs within 100 feet of the polling place, you can't ban someone from wearing a T-shirt about a political issue that isn't even, you know, like not even a direct candidate shirt, like vote for Trump, but the gun rights shirt or the green uh, environment shirt. So it wasn't even for candidates. It was these issue uh, t-shirts that this law was uh, restricting or banning. That's just so 
crazy to me. I, you know, in my head, I'm thinking, hmm, I wonder if there's a person out there who would like challenge us to be like, well, I don't own anything other than gun rights t-shirts. So you can't make me come in here shirtless. Like, I don't know. I'm just like, this is just wild to me. So what precipitated, if, if you know the details of this case, what precipitated like the challenge? Is it like a particular individual said, wait, this isn't right. And they sued or how did this kind of thing get, yeah. how does the ball get rolling? Yeah. So usually it's individuals in this case. Uh, I, I think we got involved at the court of appeals stage in this case. So we weren't involved at the, at the initial stages in the trial court. We are often involved from the start uh, with clients in, a, in the trial court. I just think in this case, I don't. I think we were not. We just became involved at a later stage. But my understanding of that case is that there were a couple individuals who were turned away, threatened uh, that they could be arrested or that their vote would be invalidated or they would they would not be allowed to vote if they didn't turn their t-shirt inside t-shirt inside out or take off their hats or whatever political apparel they were wearing. Ah, okay, got it. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. They sued. Uh, in federal court, uh, so there's a law, uh, Section 1983, which allows federal civil rights lawsuits uh, to be brought in federal court against state officials. So that's a common tool we use in public interest law. We sue the state uh, that is engaging in the policy in federal court, and we would raise an art First Amendment claim, say you know, this, this policy violates the First Amendment right to freedom of expression in that case. Okay. So I want to turn more specifically to religious freedom and just kind of get your take on a few things and maybe maybe get a lay of the land here. Um, one of the barriers in my thinking, perhaps, maybe it's not a barrier, but it's just one of the things that I think about with religious liberty is I feel very free. You know, in my church, we worship and there's no worry about the government infringing on our ability of our church to actually do anything, you know, that it needs to, to carry out its mission. Um, I know that with certain outreach options, you know, the government pretty much gets out of the way. And I hear that, you know, we're under attack. You know, you hear people mostly, I would say mostly from the religious right are saying that our freedoms are under attack and they are often, you know, thinking about religious freedom and their ability to be Christians. And I often wonder if they're overstating the case, if they're overstating the phenomenon in our culture. You know, we had a founding of our country and a lot of people came here because they didn't they wanted separation of church and state. They wanted they wanted the kind of country where they can feel free to express their faith in ways that, you know, aren't harmful to others, but it basically it's, you know, it's for them. And I know that that sort of takes a view of faith. that's more like, oh, well, faith is a personal thing and therefore it probably doesn't influence politics. And, And of course we know that faith does influence politics because people of faith vote. But I often wonder if there are, is there real discrimination? Is there real culturally widespread phenomenon going on here. I mean, obviously we know that there are cases out there, but are those just like, oh, hey, here, look at this one. And now look at this one. And now look at this one. We're being under attack. Christians have to rise up and, you know, take our country back for Jesus. Or maybe they don't even go that far. And all they're saying is, whoa, we're under attack. We don't want to be under attack. And then it's like, you know, we believe in equality. So I don't know. What's your take on that? That's a lot of my ramblings, but I'll let you I'll let you speak to it. Yeah, no, I'd say first of all, I think I think it is a real issue that there are serious issues regarding religious freedom in this country. There is a move away from protection of religious uh, religious freedom and free exercise of religion. I think for, we shouldn't overstate the fact that we are 
in a remarkably free country with regard to religious freedom. If you look at, at Europe and freedom of speech, which I think are very closely related rights, we have the right to speak out freely. Even when we say things that are offensive, you know, missionary work, for instance, in, in many countries in Europe is heavily restricted in Greece in particular because it's offensive to people to hear a message that is contrary to their, their own religious beliefs. If you tell someone they're wrong, you're offending them. If you uh, preach uh, certain messages about sex- sexuality, you know, it, people, pastors in other countries, in, in Canada and in the UK, have been imprisoned or fined for reading uh, from Romans about homosexuality. Fortunately, we don't re- don't have that level of discrimination against religion in this country right now, and I think we should be really, really thankful for that. The, the, the challenge comes that there, there really are, I think, in my, two different conceptions of what it means to have religious freedom. There's a, a very narrow conception that it means this is religious freedom is the freedom to believe what you want to believe. You know, no one can tell you what to believe. You have the right to believe whether you believe in Jesus or Buddha or Muhammad or whatever you want to believe in. You have a right to believe that, and that's your religious freedom. But there's a more robust conception of religious freedom, which goes back to the founding of this country, and I think has been the predominant one throughout this nation's history, which is you have the right to exercise your religious belief. And that's a very robust understanding of, of religious freedom. It means you can come together with others to worship together. That's at the core of religious freedom. You can form churches. You're autonomous from the government. I mean, they don't select your leaders. They don't dictate your doctrine. They don't tell you how to conduct your worship services. Uh, then beyond that, there's also an idea that you, when you start your, you, you interact in the public square, you start a business, you can run it according to the values that you hold. There's a, a really robust conception of religious freedom that I think is, has come under attack in many ways, where people say, well, you know, you can have your religious beliefs, you can have your freedom to believe what you want, but don't you dare bring it into the public square. Don't you dare live according to those beliefs, because we see those as backwards, we see them as offensive, we, we disagree with your beliefs, so keep them to yourself, keep them out of the public square. And we see that, I think, it most clearly manifested when a government, uh, currently the, the big, one of the manifestations is government agencies are refusing to do business or to, to work with religious companies or, or entities because of those uh, sincerely held beliefs of the owners or of those, those entities. One example is the, you know, the, comment, the big story about Chick-fil-A you know, in uh, San Antonio being banned from the airport there is, is one example of this, a very hot-button example of this. But it's government saying, you know, religious uh, Chick-fil-A, you're a conservative Christian organization. That means that you hold certain views about marriage, certain views about gay rights. Uh, we don't like those views. Those views are offensive to us, and therefore we are not going to do business with you. You can no longer contract with us. You can no longer operate your space, your your store, whereas any other company that doesn't hold those beliefs can do so. And that is a a form of religious discrimination saying, well, you you religious individuals cannot operate in the public square, cannot be full participants in civic society. And I think that that's very dangerous. And there are a lot of examples we see of that. Um, When I was at at Beckett, we were uh, there working, still fighting right now on behalf of uh, Christian adoption agencies in Michigan and Philadelphia that are being told by the state, you cannot have a contract with us because you will not give approval for a same-sex couple to adopt children. So we're not going to do business with you uh, at all. So th- there's, it's an ongoing, I think, increasing issue, increasingly uh, difficult issue because it touches on other issues like LGBT rights, like, you know, really complex and charged issues. And so I think there, there, there's going to be keeping more and more tension, I think, between religious, religious belief, religious exercise, and kind of the predominant cultural uh, and political understanding of certain, on certain topics. So the San Antonio airport 
that was a case where the San Antonio City Council is, it's like a jurisdiction that they have over the airport. If the airport were privately owned and run, would this become a, would this be a religious religious liberty case or would this just be, oh, well, they're just discriminating against Chick-fil-A and they're free to do that? Yeah, no, from, especially from a Pacific Legal Foundation perspective, private companies can uh, could exclude or do business with whoever they want to or not do business with. So uh, now I, I don't know how that would touch on certain civil rights laws protecting religious discrimination. But my general gut reaction as a, as a libertarian minded, as, as someone who really cares about freedom of association, is private companies can or you know, the private airport, like you said, could say, no, we don't want Chick-fil-A because their religious views are offensive to us. We disagree with them. They, they you know, donate to uh, traditional marriage causes and we're, we're pro-gay rights. We don't want them here. Private organizations absolutely can do that, but the government cannot do so. The, the idea of the First Amendment is that the government cannot shall make no law respecting establishment of religion, respecting the free exercise of religion, respecting freedom of speech. So it protects individuals against government oppression and government overreach. Yeah, that's a that's a pretty well known company that gets <laughs> a lot of bad rap. Yeah. Um, is Chick Fil A, of course, and you know there are several. I mean, Hobby Lobby is another one. What are some other cases? I mean, I think it's important to help us think about these cases because it gives it gives visual to the kind of theoretical. Oh, we need freedom of religion and we need religious freedom of speech, et cetera. Sure. So, what are what are some other examples? An, a, an ongoing fight that's been happening. Uh, for really for decades, really for the uh, century, has been the fight over um, school choice. So private schools, especially religious private schools, whether they're able to to qualify for vouchers or or funding uh, to have individuals go to those those schools. There's a uh, case uh, that's hopefully coming up before the Supreme Court about that. That uh, PLF has been involved with uh, in writing wrote an amicus brief before to get the case before the Supreme Court. Uh, and has been involved in this space, uh, fighting for school choice uh, in Montana. Basically, uh, there's a very popular voucher program. Uh, it's a tax tuition deduction credit program that uh, the the state court has said it, it violates their own state constitution because they have these ar- archaic provisions called the Blaine Amendments, which were enacted in the late 19th century as an anti-Catholic and kind of nativist, pro-nativist sentiment that we you know we need to get to stop any money from going to anything that's Catholic and anything that's that's uh, associated with religious groups like that. And so we're, we're going to ban all funding. And these laws have a very awful pedigree to do with, with nativism and Catholicism. And they're still working today to stop charter funding to go to religious, uh, religious schools for uh, school choice programs. Uh, so there's, that's an ongoing fight uh, over, over those you know, participation in funding programs generally. There was a, a very important Supreme Court decision a couple of years ago, uh, the um, Trinity Lutheran case, uh, which involved a Missouri program where they would give uh, money for uh, organizations to resurface their uh, playgrounds for children. You know, they'd, they'd give money to buy the, the, the tires or the material to do the resurfacing of a playground. And a, a church, which is a, a school and a church, uh, applied for this funding for their playground, and they were told, no, you're religious. We cannot fund you. We cannot give you the money for this program. Anyone else can participate in and get funding in this, for this, this program, but you cannot do so because you're religious. Uh, Supreme Court, in a, a very important decision, said, no, that is discriminatory. That violates the Constitution. Uh, re- religious groups have to be included on equal terms with non-religious groups in, in competition for funding programs or for, uh, for other uh, participation in these kind of government services and programs. 
Uh, so that that's that's kind of an ongoing fight. The, the ramifications of that decision are still being fought out in the school choice sphere and elsewhere. Are some of these violations that end up being turned down by the Supreme Court, like this example that you just mentioned, are they just because there might be some misguided or are maybe even their activists or local people saying, nope, we're not going to do that, and they don't realize that they're going to lose? Or has, is it still sort of kind of they can decide and they often get away with it? Well, it, with this funding, uh, ca- these funding cases, like I said, these are really old provisions in the state constitution that have been around for you know, more than 100 years, 150 years in some cases, saying states, you know, the state cannot give any aid to a religious organization, even in these kind of neutral programs. You know, we're going to give money right. to uh, to this, this secular organization to do this and also give money to the Salvation Army and also give money to the church over there. You know, it, it's an equal playing field. These laws say, no, you cannot do that. The money cannot at all go to the churches. Uh, so these laws have been on the books for a long time and states have been enforcing them for a long time. It's only recently that religious groups have been able to be successful in saying, no, that that is discriminatory. Uh, for the longest time, the Supreme Court was actually saying, you know, that, that even giving the money at all would violate the Establishment Clause. So it really is only uh, since the early 2000s, the Supreme Court has, mid late 90s, early 2000s, the Supreme Court has set has been much more permissive or allowing funding to religious organizations. And so now the battle is over whether states have to give the money on equal terms to religious organizations. Uh, before it was even, even, even whether they could give it at all was in question. And so the battle has shifted in, in really meaningful ways in favor of religious organizations. Uh, and now this is this the, the next phase of that fight is over charter schools or religious private schools. I mean, you know, school choice programs and over other aid programs. Hey, podcast listeners. Since you like listening to audio content, we wanted to let you know about a new audiobook titled Called to Freedom, Why You Can Be Christian and Libertarian. It's read by me, Jacqueline Isaacs, one of the contributing authors of the book, and every download helps to support the Libertarian Christian Institute. To learn more and to download the audiobook today, go to calltofreedombook.com. You've mentioned places where these fights are taking place, and you've mentioned places like Texas and Michigan, and I, I think I have this perception in my mind that the people who are anti-religious freedom or the people who are violating our religious freedom or even just general freedom of choice and personal freedom are are in liberal or progressive sort of uh <laughs> places you know like yeah. i'm a little surprised like is do you have any like i would say like geographic lay of the land for us i mean is are, are there some surprising places that this pops up or is it pretty random from from your perspective well i'd say it depends on the issue you're talking about with with the funding issue that we were just talking about it's actually a lot of states still have these laws in effect but it's actually most common in the the midwest and the southwest because those states were the ones that were entering the union in the late 19th century. And so in many cases, the federal government required the states to adopt these provisions as a condition for becoming a state. So New Mexico is an example. There was a, 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 a the New Mexico Supreme Court recently, a, a, a case regarding a textbook loan program for, for religious schools. And for the longest time, the, the states said, no, that you cannot loan textbooks to students at religious schools because of this, these provisions. Recently, after the Trinity Lutheran decision, the New Mexico Supreme Court said, actually, we're going to read this law in such a way that allows this aid to happen because it's indirect because of the Supreme Court decision. Uh, so there's actually over over aid. It's often actually a fight in in the West and the, in the Southwest for what, for historical reasons. 
I'd say outside of that context, you're right. I think a lot of the battles are happening in liberal progressive strongholds, but it could be a big city, you know, a city like San Antonio in Texas. It's, it's a conservative state, but it has a very liberal population in, in San Antonio. And so I think it, it really is all over the place. There isn't a concentration just in the, you know, the East Coast or the West Coast. It, it's pretty spread out. Is Boston a good place where people can practice individual liberty? <laughs> well, uh, probably I'd say for the, mo- for the most part, yes. Uh, like you're saying, like we should be grateful that we are as free as we are in this country. But there's actually it was a, a case that we were just involved with at the, the First Circuit. It was an interesting religious freedom case over the uh, Boston uh, City Hall has a flagpole. And at the flagpole, they allow organizations to, to request to fly their own private flags on this flagpole. So they've allowed flags representing different countries across the world. They've allowed uh, LGBT rights groups like the, the fly the pride flag. They allow other private groups like the Bunker Hill Association. There's the Juneteenth Association celebrating the end of slavery. They, they fly their flags there all every year. But they were denied a request from a Christian organization to fly the, the Christian flag. Uh, it was meant to be a celebration of Constitution Day and about the history, the, the contribution of Christians to the nation's history. And the city said, no, you can't fly that flag. Uh, so we, we filed an amicus brief. Uh, that's a, a brief, you know, friend of the court brief in support of a party in, in the, the First Circuit Court of Appeals recently. In that case, that decision just came out. Unfortunately, the, the First Circuit upheld the city of Boston's decision to, to deny the, the flying of the flag recently. So if someone is being discriminated against or they feel like they are, yeah. um, maybe they don't, maybe they don't know that there's a violation happening and they want to, they either want to find out yeah. or they want that they know for certain cause they, you know, they go home and look it up or whatever. And they're like, this, this has got to be, you know, amended. What do they do? What don't they do also? Like, <laughs> I'm sure yeah. that might be as important as what should they do? What are the steps to take? I mean, I think if people feel like they're, you know, right now being discriminated against you know, by, by the government or by their, you know, anyone, their, their employer or anyone else, I recommend they do reach out to public interest law, law firms are great ones to reach out to, like, like Beckett, like ADF, like Pacific Legal Foundation, seek advice to see if, if there is about a legal claim there. I think uh, also people should speak out. They should try to seek change in the legislature when possible, uh, you know, en- engage in political activism. Uh, I think you do see legislators are receptive when there's political pressure to, to change things. Uh, the government does change its policies. Last year, when there were the major hurricanes uh, in Texas and in Florida, there was a, a longstanding policy of not giving disaster relief from FEMA to churches that had been on the books for, for decades. Uh, and there was a big uh, uproar at uh, that uh, when churches, you know, that were helping people after the hurricane, giving shelter to people, and they were not able to get money to rebuild their churches or, or synagogues. Uh, and there was a, a lawsuit launched, but also there was a, a big public outcry. Uh, and that actually led to Congress passing a, cha- a law changing that policy and FEMA changing its policy as well. So that now these religious organizations and churches and synagogues are able to get disaster relief funding to, to help out after hurricanes or disasters. And that was an example where it was a combination of legal pressure from public interest lawyers and a grassroots effort of outrage you know, showing this this is absurd. These organizations are, are doing the, you know, on the front lines fighting to help people recover from disasters. Of course, they should be able to get aid just like anyone else can. It doesn't make sense. And so they were able to shift public opinion in their favor just by, by drawing attention to the outrage of it. 
So I think that's an example of, of the public interest, public interest law firms and public sentiment and, and uh, public you know, pressure campaign working hand in hand together to achieve very good results for religious freedom. So Daniel, thank you for joining us for our podcast. Is there anything else you'd want our listeners to know about this cause about or, or about Pacific Legal? Sure. I mean, I, I'd say, first of all, uh, religious freedom and freedom generally are these rights go hand in hand together. When freedom of religion is, is in jeopardy, you know, freedom of speech is often very closely associated. Economic liberty, the ability to, to have a profession, the ability to, use, to own property and to use your property freely. All these rights are, are very synergistic. They work together. Uh, you know, when we fight for liberty, we're, for one right, these rights, we're fighting, we're, we're ultimately protecting freedom for everyone. And so I think, I think people might be maybe a little skeptical of, of using the legal system to fight these battles. But I, I have seen uh, firsthand at Pacific Legal, at Beckett and elsewhere, that fighting for these individual rights does work. It, it can result in victories for individuals. You know, people do win. They, they challenge the government and they prevail. Uh, and they're able to then exercise their free speech rights, exercise their religious freedom rights. So this cause, you know, fighting for, for individual liberty in the courts does work, and it leads to long-term victories for individual freedom. Uh, so I think it's a really important work. I think that people should educate themselves about the kinds of causes, that, what, what, what is being litigated right now, the, these uh, cases that do affect them ultimately. For Pacific Legal, you can learn all about our work at pacificlegal.org. Uh, you can learn all about the work we do for fighting for property rights, for free speech, fighting against the administrative of state, which is, I think is a big problem we haven't talked about, but uh, it, it really is part of what led to a lot of the Obama administration attacks on religious freedom was that growth of the administrative of state. For instance, the contraceptive mandate uh, that was fought over in courts for years and years uh, was not part of the law that Congress passed when they passed the Affordable Care Act. But it was an agency adopted an interpretation that said everyone has to provide birth control for free to all their employees and we're not going to give religious exemptions. So it was an administrative agencies making decisions that, that encroach on individual liberty. And so when we th – this work – if we are able to fight back against administrative overreach, for instance, that also will benefit individual freedom, both free speech, free exercise, and all the other constitutional rights. So be informed, learn about the, the how rights, our, our rights work together. And when we fight for individual freedom, it really benefits everyone. Thank you, Daniel, for being on our podcast. Sure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.